Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Paul Sweeney here, accompanied by Matt Miller from Berlin, Germany. Again, continued news flow on the healthcare front as it relates to the virus, vaccines, what's working, what's not working. To get the latest, we welcome Jalen Mamadova, global sector lead for healthcare at Third Bridge, based in New York City. Jalen, thanks so much for joining us here. We had some news out here uh, today about Merck uh, that it's uh, vaccine, they're pulling, it's not working, and then they kind of pulling back from that. How significant is that? Thanks so much for having me. And it's pretty significant given uh, the low vaccine supply that we have and the inefficiencies on the logistics front for both manufacturers and providers around the cold chain for mRNAs. This really increases our reliance on the expected positive readouts from J&J and Novavax, as well as some pipeline candidates like GSK, Sanofi, and some of the newer platforms that you haven't really seen the media cover as much, like Vaxar's tablet or Codagenic's nasal vaccine. All of those now are going to start mattering. The other front is on, on Merck. So it, they have pulled back on the two, but it's important to also bear in mind that we should still be following a potential reformulation on the delivery front for their VSB platform. So if you go from intramuscular to potentially intranasal, you may still see some form of efficacy. The question then is, how far behind does that put them? On Pfizer and Moderna, puts extreme pressure in terms of streamlining their manufacturing. We've already seen hiccups in terms of, uh, you know, accommodating for temperature-controlled environments. And Moderna's booster, which will add as a third regimen to, to be completely protective from the new strains, will be more and more important. On the upside, though, uh, we've seen some loss in steam on attention in terms of the neutralizing antibody molecules from Lilly and Regeneron. Those are going to probably come back, and we'll see more and more adoption of those, as well as therapeutic products, such as the antiviral that Merck is working on. You know, we, we've heard from so many people um, that this has been an inefficient rollout, although it seems so much more efficient than the last time we vaccinated the entire world in a handful of months. I wonder what you think um, needs to be improved and if you have optimism that it will be. I do have optimism, and so Biden's plan can technically work, right? We're already on the path of, of administering a million a day. You can even double that number. But all of this is going to be predicated on seeing some form of federal guidance and financing for both providers and manufacturers. So take the provider side. That's a huge hiccup. We don't have the medical staffing. Sub-80 storage is probably going to be even more important now with Merck falling out of the race, at least in the near term. Um, helping them resupply their dry ice, which they either have to do on their own or go to the state and expanding their infrastructure on the manufacturing site. In order for Biden's plan to work, you need 7.5 million production a week for the next nine to 10 weeks uh, between Pfizer and Moderna. For that to happen, you need some assistance on the shipping and container companies as well as distribution uh, mechanisms with, McK- with McKesson. Uh, all in all, we need a central distribution system in the U.S that helps accommodate for the sub-80 storage and those special containers, assistance for companies like Sterling Ultracold that are working on cold chain solutions uh, to enable the use of mobile clinics that are really going to become important uh, in the next few months. So, Jalen, a lot of things need to fall into place. A lot of things need to happen that you just enumerated. How confident are you that this administration 
can get it done in a reasonable period of time, i.e. this year? I'm confident because the tone has changed, right? It's a, it's a more, um, our experts are confident, we'll say it this way, because the tone has changed. But I do have to say Operation Warp Speed, in the previous administration, it, it did put a lot of the, it rolled the seeds into place that needed to happen for uh, Biden's plan to work. Uh, so we shouldn't dismiss that. And our experts see that there have been a lot of progress made with Operation Warp Speed that would even make the 100 million possible in 100 days. But the tone of the Biden administration has changed, and we are more confident, our experts are more confident that we will be seeing financing uh, where need be in terms of having a convergence between uh, even take uh, federally owned material and commercially owned material across the four or five uh, pipeline candidates that are more near term and then the 64 outstanding. You know, without sounding at all political, um, the Trump administration had already ramped up vaccinations to a level that would achieve Biden's goals, right? I mean, by the time President Biden came into office, we were already vaccinating in the U.S. almost a million people a day. So all he has to do is not do worse than the Trump administration, the point that they had reached. Is that really a concern for you that President Biden's administration will now do worse because of a lack of funding or uh, production bottlenecks? So it's not so there's only so much that can happen at the federal level, which is why we bring it back to the financing component. The cold chain is not entirely developed in this country. I'm not even talking about the ultra cold cold chain, ultra, ultra, uh, you know, sub 80 storage. It's all going to come down to how streamlined the processes are at that level. Right. With uh, Merck falling out and now that we have Pfizer, Moderna and potentially J&J, that still puts a lot of pressure on two of the most complicated, logistically speaking, vaccine candidates where you're seeing increased vaccine wastage. So that's where the issue is going to be with the Biden administration. Not so much as, you know, in comparing the two administrations, it's not going to be so much in the implementation, but so much in fixing the manufacturing front, right? If you look at the supply chain, right now our focus is in streamlining those manufacturing inefficiencies that really comes down to uh, financing and some form of federal guidance. And that's what's going to dictate whether or not the Biden administration will prove to be successful. Hey, hey Jaden, we have about 30 seconds left. Um, the emerging markets, ha- I mean, the existing developed markets have their own challenges. Talk to us about the emerging markets. What's the plan there? The plan, I mean, COVAX, 20% uh, will probably, in the low middle income countries, will get vaccinated by year end. We'll see an additional 40% by middle of next year and probably completion by 2022. So that would be that would be the timeline. Jalen, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Always getting uh, your thoughts. Jalen Mamadova, Global Sector Lead for Healthcare for Third Bridge. So, Matt, I guess the key issue here is obviously funding here in the states, yep. uh, some central distribution, um, and then hopefully uh, well, we can get you know some more out of you know Johnson and Johnson. That's the next uh, pharmaceutical company that we're really waiting on. Well, I think you make also an incredibly important point with your last question. You know. We've got to vaccinate the whole world. So even if the U.S. is successful, the U.K., Germany and France, if you if you leave all of the rest of the countries in the world without vaccinations, then they just spread a new variant and you have a new problem.
Yep, absolutely. So um, as we heard from Jalen, uh, that is probably not likely till 2022. So uh, this is going to be uh, an issue for some time. But again, uh, the vaccines are getting out and hopefully uh, the, they can be ramped up in terms of timing. Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate you, you coming along. That was fun. Well, when we take a look at the large global airlines, we saw the story of 2020 was a dramatic decline in passenger air travel commercially. How about on the private side? Let's check in with Thomas Floor. He's a chairman and founder of Vistal Glober, also the leader of the new private jet platform XO. Thomas, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, I think, you know, a lot of our audience is certainly familiar when they look at the Uniteds of the world, the Deltas of the world, the European airlines saw dramatic declines in air travel. What happened to the private jet industry? Hey, how are you? Uh, very, very good question. I mean, what we really saw with the uh, what I call the destruction of the commercial infrastructure is the fact that, you know, the the the. Uh, CEOs, the chairman, the, the, the uh, important business leader around the globe, they still needed to travel. And uh, we're not depending on the load factor. So uh, what happened was that the private jet industry really filled a gap. And whilst overall travel was down, the addressable market has really uh, uh, multiplied in, 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 in the sense that uh, there's a McKinsey study that uh, up to 90% of of people who can actually afford to fly on business jets, they never did. They used the commercial infrastructure. And um, that is really a traumatic shift where uh, people were before, you know, maybe they were offering demo flights to, to show people the time effectiveness of business jets. We're now actually paying for them because that was the only way to get from a certain destination to another destination. I can understand that, um, especially during a pandemic, it's a lot more attractive to fly private. Um, I flew commercial once during this pandemic, and it's an experience that I never, ever, ever want to repeat. On the other hand, um, Thomas, there have been some events like Davos, uh, which I'm sure must be a huge part of the private jet business. I mean, I, I look at the airfield there in Switzerland and see, you know, it seems like all of the private jets in the world go there once a year. And this year they didn't. Can you feel something like that, the cancellation of Davos? Um, well, look, I mean, there is um, it, it, it's kind of like a, a very popular event. And so therefore it's kind of like covered by the press. But the, 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 the market is a, a lot bigger than just the, the, the Davos type of thing. People would make the example of uh, Super Bowl and, and what have you. Uh, I can only look at our data and our data at, at Vista Global, which, you know, you know, we have the two brands. We have Vista Jet, which really offers an alternative to aircraft ownership. And then we have the, the digital marketplace, which is FlyXO. And at the FlyXO level, for example, um, which sells memberships and so access to our fleet, we're seeing a 3x in sign-up of new members. And this is, even if you compare Q2 2020, which was the kind of like the, the center of the, of the, of the downturn uh, in, in, uh, due to COVID, we had over the year before a 3x more members signing up because people want access to a to a world infrastructure which gets them from A to B. And, and so what I'm saying and, and what I was saying on before is that, yes, 
there is less slang. I mean, Zoom, other technologies, that really makes it possible today to communicate. But there is still a very, very big activity of flights uh, uh, in demand today. And that's what we are seeing in our traffic data, and both at the Vistajet level as well as at the as the Exo level. So, Thomas, you, you talked about so that that increased the demand that you uh, mm-hmm. saw last year. Give us a sense of kind of the the breakdown between business versus personal mm-hmm. slash leisure, because I think mm-hmm. the expectation or the belief is that most of private jet aviation is business related. Mm-hmm. And I think this is correct. I mean, if, if I had to give a, 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 a more or less uh, balanced breakdown, I'd say it's, it's still 80, 20, 80 business and 20 leisure. Um, it's, it's, look, I mean, before, let's, let's take somebody needed to go from, from Boston to Des Moines in, in, in the Midwest. And, and maybe today you can get there, but you need to change airports. So now you're having your, your, your exposure, your, your health exposure to three airports and two airplanes. And today, uh, you know, a couple of executives get together and say, okay, well, three or four people flying, let's charter a plane, uh, go there in the morning, come back in the evening, having a safe travel bubble. And I think that's, that's really one of the other drivers is that uh, in the private jet industry, we were able to create these travel bubbles that everybody's tested from the driver taking you to the airplane, you're not going through a terminal building, you're actually pulling up in front of the airplane, then the pilots right. are tested, and you go there, the pilots are not allowed to leave the airplane. Look, there, there's there's no way it could be worse, Thomas, than commercial flight. Yeah. I mean, there's zero yeah, social yeah, distancing, yeah. you're shoved to get like sardines Correct. and a bus from the airport to the plane, Correct. and then no one knows Correct. how to properly wear a mask. Let me Correct. ask you about the infrastructure, because I've been watching the, uh, this signal takeover battle um, it's a mm-hmm. company that helps fuel private jets and uh, provides passenger mm-hmm. amenities. Do you see uh, this market growing fast? I mean, does the infrastructure yes. grow with the popularity and the demand? Yes. I mean, we, we have, look, I mean, we, we went through 2020 and we have very clear signals internally here. We, we're, we continue to expand. We, we have more demand than we can fulfill in our own fleet. Vista today has 130 aircraft. And we're planning to go to about 150, 160, uh, because we're every day of the year we're about 30 percent oversubscribed, wow. and which we then need to subcharter. And hence, this is this is the demand. So I, I think you're right. spot on. Uh, overall, people travel less, but the addressable market is so much bigger. And and it was one other right. in- interesting thing is that. Actually, Thomas, and, uh, we're running out of time here. We're going to have to leave it there, but uh, we'll certainly follow up with you uh, on the private jet uh, aviation industry experiencing some growth here. That's Thomas Floor, chairman and founder of Vista Global. Today, we're joined by Matt Miller from Berlin, Germany. Well, some active managers had quite the 2020 in terms of performance. Our next guest is certainly one of them. Peter Anderson, he's the founder of Anderson Capital Management based in Boston, uh, a 40% return last year versus the S&P, a similar return actually in 2019 as well. Let's get a sense of kind of how he did it and what he's thinking about uh, 2021. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for joining us here. What were the winners for you last year? What worked for you? Well, you know, I stuck to basics. I have to tell you that I've been doing this since 1993, Paul. And I will tell you that 2020 for me was the most difficult year ever 
to invest. There were so many uncertainties, of course, the virus headlining that. And um, I really didn't change any of my discipline. What I try to find are stocks that are common sense, uh, easy to understand uh, situations. And so some of the top performers actually were pet care stocks. Uh, I own a company called Trupanion, which is an insurance company, health insurance company for animals. That stock has gone through the roof because the fundamentals are so appealing. Only 1% of uh, pets out there are, have health insurance. So can you imagine mm. if we doubled just to 2%, the revenues of that company would double. So it's things like that. I tried to keep my eye on the center ring of this three-ring circus that we're in. Sometimes it takes a lot of discipline, but if you do, I, I think it does pay off. I have my dog, Steve, insured to the eye teeth. I mean, uh, he's insured <laughs> you if go. he breaks yes. your stuff. He's insured <laughs> if you break his stuff. Um, and of course, if he needed anything beyond what insurance would pay for, I'd sell a car um, to pay for Steve. <laughs> you you are typical. Yeah, you well, are I know people of the investors. Yes, people will pay anything for their pets, so that's a smart mm-hmm. strategy, mm-hmm. Pete. And congratulations on—I mean, back to back forty percent plus gains is insanely good. But um, you know, does this keep working? Um, can can you can you still bet on these uh, common sense value yep. names in twenty twenty one as we as we bounce back from if we hopefully bounce back from a pandemic? I would say with uh, great uh, courage, yes, it is more uh, applicable now than it's ever been. And the reason I say that are there are so many um, narratives out there now, right, about other types of industries, say cryptocurrency, which compare that to, say, dog food. I mean, just as an extreme example, right, because I also own Fresh Pet, which is a uh, animal uh, food producer. But when you look at cryptocurrency, I have no idea how that works, and I at least have the courage to tell people that. You know, most people have only a superficial knowledge of how cryptocurrency works, yet they plow into that. So I think more than ever, we are tempted. You know, I was talking about a three-ring circus. In the other two rings, there's a lot of things going on that can distract us from our main focus. One of them is cryptocurrency. Another one, I think, and I know this is against uh, most opinion out there is the electric vehicle market. They're great cars, but they only, they're less than 5% of the total addressable market. So we need to stay focused on this. And I think more than ever, common sense, simple to understand stories will win the day. Pete, there's, uh, you know, I would say since the uh, September-ish timeframe, if you will, kind of a rotation trade in the equity markets from some of the tried and true big tech names that have led the way really since the financial crisis, the Amazons, the Apples of the world, into some more cyclical names. How do you yeah. view that trade? Well, I view that kind of the way uh, most people are looking at uh, the big spending bill that the government is uh, projecting and the stimulus, all that. And that does tie in with these rotations. However, I think timing those rotations is is a fool's errand, and I never try to time markets like that. What I do is I say to myself, for instance, cybersecurity, is that a rotational-type industry? Absolutely not. No matter what's going on in the country, if we're in a cyclical mode uh, or value or growth, however you want to call it, cybersecurity names like Palo Alto and CyberArk are there to stay. They are endurable 
Uh, they're durable companies that I think will surpass anything in terms of trying to time markets back and forth like that. Pete, you know, um, James Carville used to say if there were reincarnation, he wanted to come back as the bond market because <laughs> – the bond market was the boss, and everyone was afraid of the bond market. But um, that's really not the case. I, I even saw um, U.S. debt financing costs are going to be the yep. lowest they've been in like four years this year. Yep. Um, is that going to stay that way? Because that's really been a huge tailwind. Fantastic point you're making because, of course, the other narrative out there now is uh, inflation. And people are very, very worried about uh, interest rates going up, et cetera. And there's tons of work being done on that. And I think it's not as simple as most people think when they say, well, there's a stimulus plan that equals inflation, that equals higher rates. I don't foresee rates increasing for the next two years. And I think that puts me on a very, uh, in a minority group of talking about interest rates. But the common sense application of this, again, I just go back to this, is that uh, the Fed is not going to make any movements right now because we have to recover from the virus. Hey, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts. Peter Anderson, founder of Anderson Capital Management, two years, 2019, 2020, 40% plus uh, returns, certainly getting it right in the equity markets. We'll have more coming up. Paul Sweeney here, accompanied by Matt Miller from Berlin, uh, Germany. Let's take a look at the theater business. Um, You know, it's really, obviously, most of the theaters around the world have been closed since the beginning of this pandemic, really crushing their balance sheets. And one of them, AMC, the largest, is trying to shore up its balance sheet. Kat Daugherty joins us. She's a high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy reporter from Bloomberg News, uh, joins us on the phone. Kat, talk to us about AMC. Again, the world's largest theater operator, really feeling the pain of this pandemic and what it's done to theater attendance. What's it doing with its balance sheet? Well, the latest today is just a string of actions that it's taken since the peak of the pandemic when it saw a number of its theaters closed, a majority um, last spring, and now they've reopened uh, about 300 to 400 of those in the U.S., but still they're seeing attendance at all-time lows. So today they announced uh, new financing that they secured. This is a combination of debt and equity. Uh, They've been going to the equity markets to raise new capital, and they're using that capital to try to get through the next few months, really looking for uh, the summer when they're hoping the vaccine will be um, largely used, and they'll see moviegoers back in their seats. I don't know about you, but I will be the first person there. <laughs> I mean, when when they open back up, I used to go to the movies every week, you know, um, and it's killing me that I can't do any of this stuff. Uh, what does AMC say about their expected rebound? Well, they're hoping that a lot of their moviegoers are just like you, that there is pent-up demand and that there are many users, viewers that want to be back in the seats of the theater, seeing the movies on the big screen and not just at home. We've seen a lot of pressure even before the pandemic uh, with consumers shifting to Netflix and other streaming services, um, but others do want to see these movies uh, in, in an experience that's unlike any other Um, when you're seeing it in front of a a big screen away from your home. Um, And I think that the pandemic has has 
uh, just ex- exacerbated a lot of those problems that they were seeing before. Um, but then again, it could also be creating this pent-up demand. It just remains to be seen. We're going to have to watch for um, the openings um, when certain states are lifting the limitations that are currently in place. And I guess another problem, Kat, is, okay, let's say you open up the theaters Is there going to be movies to actually see? We've seen a lot of the big studios, you know, kind of throwing in the towel and and putting their, you know, their, their big movies, releasing them on their streaming services. So what's the future of supply of quality content for these movie theaters? That's right. We've seen a number of delays um, into 2021, into the summer. A lot are going straight to uh, streaming services like HBO Max. Um, and every time that those announcements get made, um, AMC and other large cinema companies, Regal Cinema's parent, um, we see a, a, a reaction in the market, at least, um, to whether or not it's going to affect um, consumers' decision to return and also um, whether or not, as you say, they'll be able to see content in the theaters. Um, so that's something that uh, we're, we're monitoring um, and we're also looking to see what effects it might have on the media industry um, in Hollywood, whether um, the makers are going to be shifting to more permanent decisions that um, are going to impact cinemas, including AMC's uh, ability to continue going forward. Yeah, you know, I've heard tales that Hollywood's power was consolidated um, amidst the Spanish flu because cinema couldn't be made overseas at the time. And you mm. have to wonder if now, um, you know, the, the 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 base for making movies will shift away. You know, more and more people, Tom Cruise is the example that I'm sure we all read about, are making movies overseas um, because they just don't have the, uh, the ability to do it in Hollywood. And I also wonder if there will be enough content. You know, it takes... It, it takes a while to make a movie. You can't do this in a week. So even after the vaccine, after we've got herd immunity, it's not clear that everybody is going to be, um, you know, is going to have something in the can. That's right. However, we've seen companies like Netflix um, that are announcing big plans to create content um, that's surpassing what they've done in the past. So there are situations that are showing that it's doable, um, that it's the limitations right. are there, but there's ways around it. A lot of these studios are having to shoot, but under major limitations, um, they're having their actors uh, go through testing um, daily and yep. making sure that they can return to work and shoot for, for future content, uh, but under restrictions and, and making sure that they're doing this all um, right. you know, piecemeal um, and, and under the law. Hey, Kat, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate that. Kat Darty, high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy reporter for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.